some preview i have no idea what's going on well, <laughs> and i just watched it last night <laughs> first off i must tell you i love the title movie extravaganza because i have yeah. loved it since i was a kid you know i came from a, a terribly broken family in toronto long before it was popular and not having a, a home to come home to from the ages of six to 16 i lived in a movie theater I lived on a hockey rink. I lived in the library and I also lived in the county jail a few times. So, but I must tell you, I, and the reason I'm in America is because of Frank Capra and Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith goes to Washington. So I am a movie junkie. I was the first person in America to review movies on the news. I was five years at NBC where I won three Emmys in a row. And I should, I should, I should get, I should introduce you. Uh, Why not? Is, I can introduce is, myself better than you can. But. I'm sure, I'm sure you can. But I should, I should introduce. Uh, you know, we're joined by uh, John Barber, uh, TV producer and host, known for creating the NBC show Real People, performing stand-up comedy on many platforms, including uh, a really cool Tonight Show with uh, Frank Sinatra video oh, that I discovered you, you, that I discovered on on YouTube, directing and writing the documentary uh, JFK Assassination, the Jim Garrison tapes. And his YouTube channel, John Barber's World. Hey, and you—you you forgot he was mentored a, a little bit by uh, Red Fox, the great Red Fox. Red Fox oh, yeah. was my mentor. Believe it or not, when I started as a comic, I was the first one when I got my first talk show to put him on entertainment television, which led to Sanford and Son, and that's his real name. His real name is John Sanford, and uh, he was uh, Malcolm X's closest friend. They served time together in jail. I mean, all those stories you can see on my YouTube. But back to the business of this introduction to your show. <laughs> that music was just god awful. It sounded like stripper music. Okay. I know we need to. We need to find. We need to. You know need to you come up with like a. No, you know what you should have done since you had the man with the golden arm. You should have found a mound of cocaine. And then you should have had some doctor singing. I've got you under my skin. <laughs> All right, I should I should, introduce, I should introduce everybody. Well, this is movie night extravaganza. 
um, episode 64, pretty, pretty crazy to be at that point already. We're going to be talking about uh, Frank Sinatra and, uh, you know, Otto Preminger's The Man with the Golden Arm. Probably not going to be talking about that as much as, as we're going to be talking about uh, John's stories. But um, I, am, I am joined by J. Andrew World, um, a big fan of real people. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I can remember when I was five, I really wanted to be uh, on that show and, and get a real people T-shirt. And my parents wouldn't send in any photos. Oh my gosh, I gotta tell you, Andy, I deeply, deeply appreciate that. And I gotta tell you a quick story. There's a guy named Steve Westfeld, lives, lives in uh, New York City. He is one of the leading boxing judges in the world. And he comes to Vegas every six or eight weeks to judge a fight. He happens to be like you. He was an enormous fan of real people. He bought all my books, hint, hint, hint. And he loves going to my <laughs> website and all the rest of it, and he came and he came out here three days ago, and he took the meet at Mandalay Bay, and he begged me for a real TV, people T-shirt after all these years. So I came home and I got him a real people T-shirt, autographed it, and gave it to him. So if you give me your address, I will send you an autograph. It might be a medium or a small, but I'll send you an autograph real people T-shirt. And thank you, thank you so much. I appreciate that. See, Andy, who says this show doesn't pay? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's not money that you get paid. It's, uh, right. you know, it's it's new accessories. Uh, we're also joined by uh, Protonic Reversal host and uh, Conan Neutron and the Secret Friends uh, frontman. Conan Neutron, um, you know, coming coming at you live. Um, what have you got on the docket for tomorrow since we're doing this as a special uh, as a special Wednesday episode? Uh, Mark Stewart of the Pop Group, the English uh, post-punk band that uh, was contemporaries of Gang of Four and uh, Delta Five and uh, PIL, uh, things along those lines. Very excited well, that he's got, Colin, a, got a book. Uh, Colin the Barbarian, tell me something. Uh, do you, your show, does it handle music? Is that what you handle? Yeah, it's a one-on-one -on -one interview show. Oh, that's uh, and, great. That's fantastic. Yeah, I've done it for about eight years now. And uh, yeah, I have a lot of folks on. Sometimes it's like folks you might know, some, and then it depends on your musical taste, really, I guess. Well, you that. know, it seemed, uh, my, my wife was a uh, band singer. Sounded like oh, fantastic. Ella, yeah, Ella Fitzgerald. You ever hear of uh, Earl Father Hines? Earl Father Hines was in the Louis Armstrong Sextet. He is a godfather, oh, a godfather awesome. of jazz pianists. Well, when he moved to San Francisco and created a big band, my wife was his uh, his band singer. So it seems as though you're interested in punk rock or rock or hopefully the Beatles, the greatest musician. I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm not sure how you could be in the music and not like the Beatles, but apparently and some so people are. What brings you to uh, Frank Sinatra and the man with the golden arm? Well, ostensibly movie night extravaganza, the discussions are about like a movie, ostensibly. Oh, and I say ostensibly I because they, it goes off in every different direction, uh, especially when we have interesting. Well, you know what? Fun. It's planned so fucking bad. I mean, how can you spend two hours talking about a 70 minute movie? Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> okay, there you go. Okay, now. Meiji, I'm an I'm an enormous fan of the stuff that you do. I watch it whenever I can. So I'm glad you're here and I'm sorry you can't see. You can't? You well can the dark glasses. Why is he wearing the dark glasses? 
white king, for God's sake. <laughs> Glad to be here. Hey, everybody. Um, John coming in, busting balls here already. <laughs> balls and, this is, uh, I think, the, what, it may be the third or fourth time I've, I've had John, uh, you know, it, we've been in an interview together. So this is really great. Yeah, because we did it audio last time, but it's really great to see you have a really nice face. So I'm delighted to be here. So uh, who's in charge? It's it's me. I'm supposed supposedly supposedly I'm in charge. Are you sure? I think it's John at this point. Yeah, yeah. I, think is, I think this is uh, this is the John Barber's World podcast. <laughs> I don't want to be in charge of anything. Anyway, go ahead. Let's start. Where do you want to start? All right, so so I have a it's a couple minute clip. Um, so we we played that trailer in the beginning. Yeah, that's not how the movie was marketed. Um, when it first came out, there was uh. You know, because it was so hard to get past the censors because it's a movie literally about fucking heroin addiction. Um, although they never really use the word heroin. Um, there's a... Uh, the, so, Otto Preminger went out and basically sold this movie to audiences by explaining what the movie was about and whether kids could see it. So, I, I thought this would be a cool place to start this conversation. <laughs> um, you know, both Frank Sinatra and Kim Novak are in this and, and it's like a... It's like a one of those, um, you know. I mean, it's almost like reality TV in this way. They're like pretend, like not pretending, but like they're on the set of the movie, kind of uh, staging out, um, you know, this conversation. And it's clearly like a, like a, you know, not a scripted conversation, but they're they're kind of selling the movie to you. Um, sure, sure, busy, you know. Well, here's to it, Molly O. Molly O. I ain't heard that since you went away. Cut print. Very good. Come, let me down. Okay. Mr. Pierce, I'm very glad to see you. Awful nice to be here. I just came from the projection room. How much more have you got to shoot? Oh, only a couple of more scenes. We're finishing the picture tomorrow. Well, I just got in at the very end. Oh, here is Frank. Frank. How are you? Nice to see you. Well, to see you again. You know, time. that was a terrific job you did. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad you like it. And here's Eleanor Parker, who played his wife. Hello, Miss Parker. You know, when I saw you about to jump off that balcony, I almost jumped up to try to stop. <laughs> Kimo. A long way down. And here's our little Kim Novak. How do you oh, do? Yeah. I can understand why Frank fell in love with you. Hey, watch it, watch it, watch it. <laughs> Let's read some lines. We All gotta right, go just over. get ready. Yeah. So, you know, I uh, was a little dubious about this picture uh, before I came out here. They told me that in Washington they were trying to censor it. Well, maybe they were trying to censor it, but you know, they can't. Because actually, as long as we have a Supreme Court, there's no censorship in this country, even for movies. But there were pressures brought upon me and about the whole industry. We're trying to pressure you. You ought to see the pressures they bring on me. Well, if I can stand up on the pressure as well as you can, I'd be very happy. Well, you will. But some people think that the theme of narcotics should not be presented in movies. Now, I actually am not making a documentary, as you have seen. I'm doing the dramatization of The Man with the Golden Arm, a novel by Nelson Algren that won the National Book Award five years ago. That was the book that Hemingway praised so much, I think. Yes, Hemingway and Sandberg and a lot of other people liked it very much. And I fell in love with these characters. And I always wanted to put them on the screen because I think they're contemporary characters with contemporary problems. 
And I think that the problem that the leading man, the leading character, Frankie Machine has, the problem of narcotics is a very important thing today, and we don't help it by playing ostriches and putting our head into well, the sand. Well, the boys in Washington seen it? Oh, but that never plays any part in the thoughts of censors. All they think about is power, bias, prejudice, and suspicion. Well, I agree with you, but one thing I couldn't help but thinking as I saw that picture, do you think that it should be shown to adults or should children also see it? I'm going to in suggest to every theater owner who plays the picture to label it. That is to let the people know what it is about. And then parents who don't want their children to see it will have the possibility to forbid them to go to see it. I myself, I don't say it as a producer because I want many people to see it, think it'll be good for everybody, young and old, to see it and to be warned against the dangers of narcotics as early as possible. Well, I think that there are some pretty grim and realistic moments in that picture, but I think I'd want my children to see it too. I think it's a terrific show, terrific drama, and I don't think it should be censored. And if I could make a prediction, I predict that it'll do a real service for humanity. Thank you very much. You forgive me, Mr. Pearson. Uh, Ludwig, we go here because we got a half hour to finish the picture. Yeah, we go. Come. Wait a minute. Shoot. Wait a minute, Anatole. Schnell. Now, he has been doing this since the picture started. You be the judge. Do I really have an accent as ugly as he makes it <laughs> out? a very romantic accent. Thank you very much. All right, let's go. That was a fantastic clip. It was so interesting. But my wife followed up and she said, hey, all the, that was not his favorite movie. Talk about his favorite movie. So I'm sorry for the interruption. <laughs> what, was, what was Sinatra's favorite movie? Manchurian Candidate. That, so, we, so the second episode of this podcast oh, um, yeah. with, with, uh, with JG, we, yeah. we, talked, uh, we talked through Manchurian Candidate for three hours. Yeah. And um, the, the we, we should have had John on for that episode. Uh, well, let me get rid of my. That's the Manchurian candidate on the phone, actually. <laughs> <laughs> let me, let me we we weren't we weren't quite sure what this podcast was going to be yet, and we ended up having like a three hour discussion. We talked through, um, you know, the original story for the Manchurian candidate was uh like the the, uh, the Korean War. Um, uh, yes. Reagan Reagan did these like you know these things that were supposed to scare the shit out of people, thinking that you know anyone that kind of stayed in, in Korea or kind of renounced the United States, any soldier. Um, had to have been brainwashed by the Soviets. So we. Yeah, we'd, well, the, it, yeah. the really interesting thing none of my success was planned. It was all absolutely and totally accidental. And one of the themes that ran through my entire life was being involved with Frank Sinatra from the time I was 17 until the time he died. And it's just absolutely incredible. How he kept popping into my life. Yeah. I'm how did you how did you meet him originally? Well, I didn't meet him originally, but I came to the United States when I was 17 illegally to be a professional gambler. From the ages of 15 to 17, any money that I could steal or earn or whatever, I did a lot of that. I found out that I was playing with guys. I was always the first to lose the money. And always the last to leave. And I thought, Jesus, why am I here? These guys are just horrible, bloody people. I don't want to be around them. So I thought, you know what? If I'm going to learn to do this, I better learn to do it. So 
in in the fifties, I bought two books. I I remember everything. Scarney on cards, Scarney on dice. Remembered it all. And in two weeks, I made seven hundred dollars for a sixteen-year-old. Hang on, I don't know. Next time you take a break, I'll find the book. Sixteen-year-old. The cover of my book, "Your Mother's Not a Virgin," has me in this gorgeous blue suit. Cost a hundred bucks at that time, and I was wearing a Stetson. And I'm only 17 years of age, and I'm not in front of the old Bugsy Siegel Flamingo Hotel. Anyway, I'm on the plane, on the train, and I'm bound for Vegas. This is the Vatican, right? And there's an accident on the train, and the train stops. Now, I don't think it's an accident. I think the Royal Canadian Mounted Police had contacted the railroads and said, hey, stop that thing. Johnny Barber's on there. He's got to come back and face a trial here in Toronto. So I jumped off the train, got on a bus, and the only place I'd go was the Calneva Lodge. So I'm at the Calneva Lodge. I walk in, and I'm dressed great. Now, in those days, people used to dress like this, wear a suit and a tie. They always looked fantastic. And to me, a kid walking in there, it was like walking into the set of an MGM musical, you know, where was... Mickey Rooney and where was Judy Garland and everybody looks so great. I walked around a while and then I just said, well, I'm going to go to the crap table and I'm going to start playing. So I get to the end of the crap table and start playing. I'm doing well. Pretty soon people are looking at me, even though I'm wearing this Stetson. And I think, oh God, they know I'm only 17. They're going to arrest me and they're going to throw me out. Pretty soon, a lot of people are stopping and looking my way, including people at the bar, but they were not looking at me. So I turn around to see what they're looking at. And in through the two doors, glass doors, comes Frank Sinatra, arm in arm with Sam Giancana, the mafia of Sachitan in Chicago. And they're accompanied by three Italian Praetorian guards. Everybody gets deathly still. And he just walks right by. Now, a week earlier, I had seen him in Till the Clouds Roll By. You probably have seen him on top of a white pedestal in a white tuxedo singing Old Man River. As good as Paul Robeson. That's great. So here he was in the movie. Now he's walking right by me. And about 20 years later, I became his private writer. But that was an accidental meaning. So that's how I met him the first time. So there'll be more, a lot more Sinatra stories later. So let's get back to the man with a golden arm because he hated, hated drugs and he kicked um the black guy the uh, who was the other guy uh what was the uh, joey bishop sammy davis uh, jr sammy they he both they kicked sammy out of the house because sammy was smoking a joint and talking to him for two years he hated drugs hated drugs even though he himself was an alcoholic and, and this, this movie specifically, I think, kind of touches on that connection because, you know, the first place that he ends up going that he hangs out in throughout this movie is the bar. Um, so he gets out of this rehab center and or, you know, the, the hospital, which I mean, it, it's interesting. I think that we've criminalized uh, we've criminalized drugs, obviously, as much as we have. You know, we had the entire war on drugs. This is an anti-drug movie happening before Nixon kind of kicked off. the war. On you drugs. know what? The government can't win any war. They can't win in Vietnam. They can't win against drugs. They can't win against poverty. I mean, my God, they can't win anything. 
The smart money was on drugs in that war. Definitely. <laughs> I get on drugs if that's the war. That's it. That's it. That's it. I was watching. Uh, I was watching that George Carlin, the George Carlin stand-up bit the other night, where he's talking about like, oh, we declare war on everything. We love war so much. It's like the only thing that we can't declare war on is a uh, war on homelessness because there's no money in that. But everything, oh. anything you can make money in, yeah. So there's that famous George I, Carlin. I love about that. Carlin. There happen to be two great Carlin stories in my book, by the way. When I beat him up for uh, the lead in a sitcom, it's a great story, but I'm not going to tell it here. <laughs> you you got to buy the book for that, right? Yeah, you got to buy the book. Listen, I hate to, the, be, the best book ever written about show business. It was written by a fellow named Ben Hecht. Have you ever heard of the name Ben Hecht? I don't think so. Well, Ben Hecht's autobiography is called The Child of the Century. Ben Hecht was born a reluctant Jew in Racine, Wisconsin, ran away to get into the circus, ended up being a paper boy in New York and became, in Chicago, became their leading columnist, ended up going to New York, met Charles MacArthur, they wrote the front page. He became Hollywood's most successful screenwriter in history. He invented the gangster movie with Scarface. And he wrote sure. Gone with the Wind in 12 days and never read the book. You know, the movie Gone with the Wind, I hope you can't hear my phone. I tried Scarlett O'Hara is on the phone to tell us all about it. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, uh, uh, Selznick. That movie, uh, that movie was written with a, with a shit ton of speed, right? That's like yeah, the famous well, story. It was written in 12 days, but what happened? They were halfway through the movie. And it was shut down because Selznick didn't like it. Clark Gable wanted the director fired because before Clark became a star, he had a romantic liaison as a young man with the director. And now that he was a star, he did not want it known. So he wanted to get rid of him. They got rid of him. Selznick didn't like what he saw and he shut it down. And uh, wasn't there wasn't there a famous story about the writer and Selznick and amphetamines and uh, like an insane amount of speed being used on the set. Of no, the, of no, that oh, was totally untrue. It was bananas. And what it was is that he called Ben Hecht. You know, uh, front page, His Girl Friday. I mean, the greatest movies of all time yeah. written by Ben Hecht. And he hated movies, absolutely hated them. He only did them for money. His love was <laughs> writing books. So anyway, Snells, it calls me, comes to Hollywood, paying him a lot of money. And said, okay, Ben, let's get started. Ben said, well, I haven't read the book and I'm not going to read it. Margaret Mitchell's book. And Selznick said, holy shit, what are we going to do? And Ben said, well, don't you have readers who read this stuff and give you a synopsis? And Selznick said, yeah, but it's only 30 pages. And Ben said, well, give me the 30 pages and I'll, we'll write it together. So in 12 days, night and day, living on bananas, they wrote Gone with the Wind. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote he wrote Rope, too, didn't he, uh, Alfred Hitchcock? Uh, well, it had nothing to do with Hitchcock. This was uh, Ben Hecht. But I started yeah, no, ben, I'm saying Ben Hecht uh, wrote Rope, I thought. Yeah, so uh, now here was, is what I was going to say. His autobiography about somebody in show business was the best until I wrote mine. Which is <laughs> Copy's still available. And uh, listen, I, I would not lie to you. Because there are no chapters in it. For example, you want to know about Sinatra? It, it's written like it's a series of newspaper columns. And so there are some columns in Sinatra. You just open it to the column. 
I was the first person gonged as the host of the gong show. It's five pages in the book. It's a hilarious, terrific read about me and Chuck Barris. You open it up for five pages at 10 o'clock at night, laugh and go to bed. I mean, it's a fact. John, what's the name? What's the name of the of the book? You didn't you didn't introduce it's it. Called uh, your mother's not a virgin. Oh, you, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. He he wasn't insulting you for us. He was actually saying <laughs> it. <in his> book. <laughs> no, he, he dropped that in really fast. I didn't. I didn't. And, and yeah, the subtitle is the bumpy life and times of the Canadian dropout who changed the face of American television. And I did that with real people. You know, when I was in Hollywood. And I was just a critic. I was going around for four years trying to sell real people as a series. And my host, co-host, was going to be Richard Pryor. Wow. And they all told me I was nuts, except David Wolfer, the producer. He said, John, that is genius. But you're never going to get it on the air. And I only got it on by accident. Anyway, we're talking about Sinatra. So let's hey, get real, back real to quick. Sinatra, Then we'll get back to me. Real, real quick, if I could, just I, I want to plug John's book, uh, Your Mother's Not a Virgin, because I read it when it first came out, and it it's a massive tome, and you can read about everyone in that book. Uh, Pat Morita shows up, you know, the karate master from The Karate Kid, uh, Jane Fonda, Ronald Reagan shows up. Uh, John had a very interesting time interviewing Reagan. Everyone and shows can, up in this book. It's see, incredible. Uh, there might be behind me the picture of Reagan standing up while I'm sitting down. Mm -hmm. Do you see the picture there? Would you, uh, well, if you can't see the picture, do you want to hear the brief story about how that happened? Yes, I definitely want to want to uh, hear. There, uh, no, there's Sinatra over my head, uh, and then Jane. Uh, there's uh, Jane Fonda to my right. No. It's, it's a little higher. So get back to the four shot. I want to look at you guys. I don't want to look at me. Okay. Very, very briefly, I had the best morning talk show in America in 1970. And the proof of that was uh, the uh, Nicholas Johnson. You ever heard the name Nicholas Johnson? Nicholas Johnson, 36 years of age, the young, youngest FCC commissioner in American history. And that's when we had a total free press before they assassinated Kennedy and before the worst president in American history, um, Billy Clinton signed the Communications Act that put all of our media into the hands of six corporations. We did have really a great, a great free press. Anyway, Nicholas Johnson was a friend of the Smothers Brothers and the Smothers Brothers. Was, oh, thank you so much for showing it. The Smothers Brothers had come on my show and they enjoyed it so much because my show was the only place they could talk about their controversy with CBS over this great political stuff they did. So when Nicholas Johnson's book came out, Tommy Smothers said, hey, go on John's show. He came on my show. Then he wrote a letter to Leonard Goldison, the president of ABC, and said, you have the brightest and the funniest and the most interesting host. In America, make it a national show. Then he sent me the letter, and then he called me. He said, I hope I didn't get you fired by sending you this. But I did get fired when I tried to <laughs> book Jim Garrison. Anyway, Ronald, I, Ronald Reagan, as you know, was an extreme right winger. And as a host then, you could never take any side. You couldn't be liberal. You couldn't be progressive, you couldn't be conservative or socialist. Otherwise, 
there was a fairness doctrine that would allow other people of other persuasions to be on. So yeah, and they exploited the shit out of that, the far yeah. right in this country. Yeah. So I so I had I had to book people on that I felt could speak for me and I didn't have to take a position. Now <laughs> Ronald Reagan was running around, he was running for his second term as governor of California. And he was running around at the time. There was a free speech movement created in San Francisco, chaired and run by a guy named Mario Savio. You might not know the name, but he was like. You put your hands upon the body and the wheel, man. Yeah. He, <laughs> That's he's a, like one of the famous labor. He's uh, like the Caucasian speeches. Martin Luther King, Mario Savio. Savio. Yeah. And, and Reagan hated him. And he hated these long-haired hippie kids. And every time he got on television, he said the reason America is falling apart because these long-haired hippies and these kids with beards, they're not paying attention to their teachers. And that's why this country is going to fall apart. He kept saying that all the time. So anyway, rather than going on the Today Show, he wanted to come on my show. Now we're live, 90 minutes. Okay. So he shows up with an entourage of suits, about four or five of them. And one of them comes over to me at about eight minutes before airtime. I'm sitting behind my desk like this. He looks at my desk, which is empty. He said, where are your notes? And I said, what notes? He said, the notes of the president, uh, the, the questions you're going to ask the governor. I said, I don't have any questions to ask the governor. He said, well, he's going to be here for an hour. What are you going to say to him? I said, I don't know till he sits down. And he says, well, I must tell you, the governor will not come here if he cannot see a list of your, your uh, questions. And I said, okay. So he walks away, says something to Reagan. Reagan looks at me and like, no. And the guy comes back and he says, I'm sorry, the governor cannot appear. I said, fine. We go on in five minutes. I'll just tell folks the story. And he said, what story about... I'll say about you coming here and wanting to know what I'm going to ask the governor. And the governor's shaking his head, saying no. He's like, so he runs back to Reagan. <laughs> and Reagan <laughs> runs to me. And there's a picture he snapped as he shakes my hand. He said, I have no idea what we are going to talk about, but I have to sit down. And he sat down. He gave the greatest interview he ever did. And when I, he was comfortable, I wanted to nail him. And what I did is I showed a clip of him on the news talking about how this country is going to collapse because of students with long hair and all the rest of it. And I said to him, did it ever, because he was always comparing the United States, the Roman Empire. He said, that's why the Roman Empire was going to collapse because of this. And I well, said, well, that's why the Roman Empire. Yeah. yeah. And I, said, I said, is <laughs> that really why you think the Roman Empire collapsed? And he said, absolutely. And I said, you know what? Don't you think it maybe was because the Roman Empire, like us, was fighting a war in an ancient, uh, uh, an, uh, ancient country that was not theirs called Palestine? Well, he fucking froze. But I thought I had him. And then he just started talking. I didn't even know what he was talking about. And he was wonderful because he was the kind of guy like Cary Grant, the camera liked him. When it was over, 
I never looked at anything that I had ever done. And I, we had a staff before. I said, let's look at Reagan again because I feel very uncomfortable. He was like an empty suit. You know, capturing that guy was like trying to shovel smoke. He didn't stand for anything. It was all, but he was charming, like Bill Clinton and people like them. We looked at the screen and we could not move because I said, you know, that guy is going to be the next president of the United States. And he was an empty suit and he was an empty suit as president. So that's my wife's favorite picture of me in show business, more than <laughs> me with Sinatra. So there you go. All right. Well, so 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 getting back to the, the Sinatra <laughs> thing. Um, no, because I, I'm trying to. I, I we have to format this in some way. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I don't, don't be sorry. These stories are great. We love it. It's great. Okay. Uh, no, but also every every episode we kind of drop Reagan somehow into it, which kind of. Oh yeah. Up. Oh, do we? Do yeah. we do that for us? All right, I do that. He's the one. I, he does. And, and that that started that started because of the episode where we did uh, Manchurian Candidate, which was the second one, and we showed a clip of um we showed a clip of Reagan talking through like the you know uh, Korean soldiers were brainwashed story, um you know that that kind of inspired the Manchurian Candidate novel. And so then from, from then on, I was, you know, thinking like, how can I drop Reagan into every episode? Cause I thought that was a really funny thing to do because it kept coming up in, in conversation. But, is. um, so, so how did you end up being, um, Sinatra's, uh, writer? Oh my God. This is a five minute story. It may run to a 10 minute story, but it's certainly interesting. And I'll tell you the second time I came almost in close contact with Sinatra. I was 20 years of age and I'm a mailboy at Paramount Studios. And one of the guys there, he was a, a Greek kid. His father was a mega millionaire baker in Chicago who hated the fact that his son came to Los Angeles to be a producer and married a Jewish girl, which is all a sin to him, all the rest of it. And he wanted to be like a young Greek producer named Dandy Kennedy and make movies. And he came to me one day because he thought I was funny and I was in an acting class. And he said, do you think you could write a movie? And I said, no, I can't write, I don't know. I, I just watch movies, I couldn't write a movie. He said, well, you know, but you talk about them all the time and you seem to love movies. Could you, could you write a, a, if you were gonna write a movie and it were a, a low cost movie, really cheap, what would you do? And I said, the obvious, you'd have to write a movie that took place outdoors, sun up to sundown, and it would have to be a Western, probably. That's what you do. He said, I have 600 bucks. Would you do that for me? I said, no, I don't want your money. And he begged me, but he was my best friend. I said, well, give me two weeks. So two weeks, I wrote the script. I gave it to him. He got it to Lindsay Parsons, who was the leading producer of Westerns in Los Angeles. And he got... Uh, Barry Sullivan, you ever heard of a, a cinematographer named Haskell Wexler? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's won, uh, Bob for Glory won an Oscar. Haskell Wexler was my best friend for five years because of this. So anyway, the guy wanted to make uh, the movie, Barry Sullivan was going to direct it. Haskell wanted to get into the cinematographer's guild and he loved it and he said, let's shoot it. And then the next day, we got a call from this monogram, and they said, no, we're not doing Westerns anymore. So it was over with, over with. 
Now I get a call from Haskell. And do you remember the blacklist in Hollywood in the 50s? Ten guys yes. went to prison. One of them was Albert Maltz. And he wrote a book called A Long Day in a Short Life about his life in, in, in jail. Haskell had bought it. And he called me and he said, hey, for 10 weeks at $600 a week, will you write this? He was now at MGM making a movie. And I said, I don't know how to write. He said, listen, this takes place in a prison. Your movie, the dialogue, was fantastic. And if you're in prison, all it is is dialogue. So please do it. So I wrote it. And the reason he bought the Albert Maltz book, he said, was because Frank Sinatra had bought the execution of Private Slovak written by William Bradford Huey. Does any of this ring a bell to you? Do you know what the execution of Private Slovak was? I don't. Shit, this went from entertainment television to PBS and educational television. <laughs> so, what it is, it's a story about the only American soldier executed by Dwight Eisenhower for desertion when he never really deserted. Now, this is how ballsy Sinatra was. He bought the rights to it, and he went to Columbia, where he was a powerhouse. And Cohen loved him because he had Sinatra now, and he was going to hire another black writer to write the screenplay. That meant that anything that Sinatra did and allowed would make everything else valuable, so Haskell bought that. I did the not I did the screenplay and Richard Widmark was gonna star in it. And I'm only 20 for Christ's sake and I think, oh my God, I'm gonna be a big star. <laughs> and then Sinatra gets a call from Joe Kennedy and he says, Francis, my boy is going to be the next president of the United States, but he can never make it if you're working with commies. Please. Sinatra canceled the project and that ended it. So, Damn. But then when I met Sinatra again, it was quite by accident. If you want to hear that story, I can tell you that story too. We should we should, we should pivot to talking about uh the movie that we're ostensibly talking about <laughs> yeah, uh, okay. for a little bit. And then and then I'll I'll ask you about it later on. In, in, yeah, listen, uh, I want to hear your thoughts about Francis and his movies. And to show you again how balls he, he was, he did that anti-dope film, which was a very, very tough sell, as you saw. And nobody, but nobody wanted him to make the Manchurian candidate, and he made it. I, I really, I mean, I really definitely enjoyed the Manchurian candidate. And it's interesting to hear that that's his uh, favorite, his favorite, because in this so this is, I think, before that movie gets made. Um, yeah, do you remember a very early movie he made called Suddenly? I haven't seen that. That's I'm, I'm familiar with it, but it's been a long time since yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, that was one of his first movies. Going to assassinate the President of the United States. Isn't that sort of ironic? That, that, I, mean, well, I mean, from here to eternity isn't bad, too. You know, what? Right? From here to eternity is pretty good too. He's in there. Oh yeah, and you know, if it had not been for Ava Gardner, he would never have gotten that. You know that Sinatra tried to kill himself. Wow, really? Yes, he tried. That, tried that's a crazy him. thing to drop right before we watch a clip. And, but. and, the, yeah. well, and the other <laughs> thing is, you know, 
when singers sing, and it happened to a lot of them, Frankie Lane was one of them, you can understand it. They get nodules on their vocal cords. Yeah. And they are actually like calluses on your hand. But Sinatra was smart. He he knew that if he didn't sing for six months, he'd heal himself. He did. Yeah. Who Julie Andrews ruined her career. Yeah. Great, great singer because she got the nodules and she didn't have the patience to shut up for six months and a, and a, a surgeon <laughs> ruined it. Really. Yeah, I, I'm no Julie Andrews or Frank Sinatra, but I'm very well aware of all these. And there's certain exercises you can do to uh, yeah. avoid that. But it's real. I mean, it will end a career flat out. Yeah, and nothing was happened. You know, uh, he 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 was bipolar, and he and uh, Neil Simon and Red Fox are the only three people in show business, and I knew them all and knew them well, who ever kept their word for, to me under very very tough circumstances. So I had nothing but good things to say forever about Francis Sinatra. All right. So this this is a this is a clip of um, where he's talking about um, how proud he was to have worked on Man with the Golden Arm because oh, you know, good. Smart, very smart of you. Good for you. <laughs> because it's an anti-drug movie. I mean, pretty much, and it is a movie that nobody really wanted him to work on. It's a movie that nobody wanted uh, Otto Preminger to work on, which. I want to talk about Otto Preminger um, after this too, because he's kind of a very interesting figure. I feel like in in, in Hollywood, definitely. Uh, as definitely. someone who kind of he's kind of like the early version of like a, a cancel culture is coming kind of figure, right? Like yes. working on these uh, controversial projects. But this is the the Sinatra clip. Frank, I gather the night you won the Oscar for Eternity was the high spot in your professional career, wasn't it? Well, it's one of the high spots. Uh... Yeah, there have been, there've been several others, too. Uh, for instance, uh, Golden Arm, when I did Man with the Golden Arm, I think was one of the two high spots. And um, one of the, uh, it was one of the difficult things to do, by the way, the, uh, the uh, From Here to Eternity role, because it was the first time <laughs> I had ever done anything like that. And the other difficult thing I've had to do was to sing the national anthem in the polo grounds. Why, uh, why was that? Well, uh, uh, you know, singing, when you do a, a, a ball game or, a, or a, a large outdoor gathering and you're asked to sing the national anthem, they put you at second base and the orchestra's way out in the center field somewhere. <laughs> and it gets a little, little uh, difficult as well because the notes that you, the, the orchestra plays are about, uh, oh, I don't know, a split second behind you and it gets a little confusing as to what. You know, I once saw a politician make a speech from second base and the applause sort of hit him halfway through his following sentence for the same reason, I imagine. Seriously, that's exactly, Frank. That's what I meant. <laughs> what, what do you regard as the most satisfying thing you've done in all of your show business career? Well, as I mentioned briefly a minute ago, Ed, I think, uh, first of all, I must preface it by saying that I'm a, I'm a real stickler for perfection in my work and in most other people's work, too. I find myself picking whatever I do apart which I do believe is quite healthy. And, um, I, I, and I found that after seeing The Man with the Golden Arm, I was as contented with that performance as I've been with anything I've ever done in my life, and particularly uh, in the professional world. It gave me a great satisfaction, really. Well, so from Golden Arm, you had a great deal of satisfaction, but not the big award, is that right? That's quite true. No, we didn't get the award for that, but... You just reminded me. I got something to show you. Speaking of awards, come with me for a second. Good. 
took him out of the back and shot him. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I got something to show you when it comes to a war. Yeah. It's going to be his head's on the fucking trophy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Surprise ending. Everybody was I, I got into television for two reasons. The first reason was Jack Carr, by far the greatest, greatest talk, late night talk show in history. Carson, none of them come anywhere close to Jack Parr. And the, Ed, the other was Edward R. Murrow, America's greatest and one and only newsman. And you know why he's sitting there holding a cigarette? Ed Murrow did one of the most, one of the first most provocative documentaries ever done on American television, which he did on CBS. And it was about migrant farmers and how they were being abused on thousands of acres of land in the South in the United States, where they owed their soul to the company store. They made nickels and dimes and they were being abused a whole hour of this. I mean, it was an absolutely incredible documentary. The name of it, I cannot remember. And it's probably a hard find if you search it. But guess what happened? He discovered the land was owned by Coca-Cola. And when Coca-Cola called CBS said, and said, if that happens again with the Mr. Merle, you will not have a penny of ours. So they took his job away as a newsman and put him in the chair to talk to celebrities. <laughs> that's cancel culture. That's that is, like, yeah, that is, that is cancel culture. That's, that's the old style of cancel culture where yeah. they kind of move you around. <laughs> Yeah. By the way, Dan Dan Rather, who's no Edward Murrow, but pretty all right in his in his own way, you know, uh, he has a show on Access TV, which is basically, hey baby boomers, do you not like any music after your generation? Great, this is the channel for you. But it's a it's a one on one interview show. It's actually pretty good. It's, it's well, very I'm not, uh, yeah, quickly about, I like Rather. about Dan Rather. When I interviewed Jim Garrison on September first, nineteen eighty one, for three and a half hours. A man who actually solved the assassination in 1967 and announced it on the news in 1967 that he had solved the case. And I suggest well, that, that so your so your read on your read on Jim Garrison was that he was honest and and actually no much more than honest. Aside from the fact that you can go to my site and see the Garrison tapes for nothing, but for two dollars, the Citizen Kane. Uh, JFK documentaries is the American media and the second assassination of President John F. Kennedy, in which he proves all the facts. Now back to Dan Rather. You ever heard of something called Project Mockingbird? Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was the CIA yeah. involvement with That's the media. Right. The CIA took over all American media in the late 50s. And in this movie, you see Senator Church interviewing the head of the CIA and admitting they have 400 CIA agents writing all the news and all of the networks and the rest of them. And when I interviewed Garrison, he said, John, the assassination in Dallas was a no-risk operation. And he said, I must tell you, aside from the CIA and the Dallas police, there is media involvement because they have to spread the fiction before the truth sets in. That media is CBS, owned by Bill Paley, 
a CIA asset in the, in the early Second World War, and the two leading mockingbirders, mockingbirders are Dan Rather and Uncle Walter Cronkite. And you see how they literally fall apart in front of the camera on this. Now, when I made the documentary, I called Dan Rather. They wouldn't talk to me, and I called his agent. I said, I have $25,000 left in my retirement fund. It is Dan Rather's, if he will come on my show for this documentary, to answer one question. They said, what's the question? I said, I'm not telling you. I'm paying $25,000. He can answer <laughs> one question. He said, no, I won't answer it. So he can come on and say, no, I won't answer it. And I'll still get him $25,000. He turned me down. And you know what the question was, Conan? Who was with you when you saw the Zapruder film and lied to the public when you said John Kennedy is hit with the third shot and his head flies violently forward? When we know it went backward, but we didn't know that for 13 years. Back and so, to the left. That's it. Back that's exactly right. Dro dropping the Bill Hicks reference for us. You know, <laughs> George Bush Sr. said, if they ever knew we were uh, what we were up to, they would chase us down the street and hang us. He said, he said that to Helen Thomas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said that to Helen Thomas, and it's in our book. And I'll tell you something, Conan. Dan Rather is one of the motherfuckers <laughs> they should hang. And he won't talk. Well, he's on. Uh, he's on. He's on paid cable, so he's as good as dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Oh, I wish we could waterboard. So, <laughs> <laughs> so no. So the reason I asked about uh, Jim Garrison is that, um, and JG was part of this too. We did kind of like a deep dive into the Oliver Stone JFK. Uh, we movie. we interviewed a, a friend of John's, I believe, uh, Joseph McBride. Oh my was, god! Yeah, he yeah. was he was on one, but we also interviewed uh, uh, Jim D, D. Eugenio on that on the episode with, well, uh, with this uh, revolution episode too, right? Okay, um, but Oliver Stone has to go to a proctologist once a week to have Jim Eugenio's lips removed from his ass. Uh, <laughs> he wrote the uh, he wrote the four hour documentary that. Uh, Oliver put out that is absolutely and totally worthless. And the fact that he would hire somebody like Whoopi Goldberg, who has not said a fucking word about the Martin Luther King assassination, not said a fucking word about the murder of John Kennedy. And all she's got a word right now. She's on the phone. Huh? <laughs> she's coming in with her comments. I love this. I love it. So, and I, listen, uh, I have a friend of mine, Lena Sanek, who designed the opening to my shows as a major played a major role in both my documentaries. He loved the second part, four hours. And I said, what What was new that you learned? He said, nothing, but he said, it's made well. He said, well, you watch the first 10 minutes. So yeah, I'll watch it. So I watched the first 10 minutes. I must tell you, it would have to improve to be boring. I mean, it's just <laughs> god-awful worthless. You know, and I'm a fan of Oliver's. You know, when he was on Dope and he was writing, writing Midnight Express and I was a critic, I said, this movie is so well written. That guy, no matter how high he is, deserves an Oscar. And he got an Oscar. So he's pissed off because when he made JFK, 
he wanted to make a documentary about Garrison. And Garrison turned him down. Garrison was on his deathbed and his daughter Elizabeth was speaking for him. Because Jim Garrison said, John Barber is the only person I know who risked his career to let me speak. The day I booked him on the AM show, I'm the number one show, one of the first, first uh, uh, Emmy, I was fired immediately. And then t uh, 10 years later, when I get to real people on the air, the most interesting, original, successful show in American history, 50% of all Americans were watching my show. So I thought, wow, when I got it now, the news comes out that the House Select Committee says four shots were fired. So I called Jim right away. We talked a lot on the phone for 10 years after I got fired. He loved me. So anyway, because I was all, I would write jokes for him. Uh, but in any event, I said, do you feel like you're vindicated? And he said, John, I feel like a blind man who got a very small trophy in an unlit room. I mean, that's the way he talked. So I said, well, I'm going to come down there and I'm going to try to tell your story. And I did. He was savaged and libeled in the story. They edited to pieces. And I was fired the next day, the very next day. So I lost the most two original, most successful shows. And Garrison was well aware of that. And so Garrison said, no, John's going to tell my story. And so I was chosen to be his storyteller. But, you know, I didn't want to be. I didn't plan it. I didn't, nothing, I didn't plan anything. The only thing I ever looked for was to get on television, to stand up and do jokes and interview interesting people. And the reason was I didn't get on television to find success or money. I got on television to find me. And I thought if I could talk to these people who were successful and famous, maybe I could learn something about how to organize my own life. That's, that's what it was to me. That's all it was. And everything blossomed after that because fortunately, I guess I was really good at what I did. So there you go. All accidental. All right. Well, we should we should get a little bit into um, Man with the Golden <laughs> Arm. Um, <laughs> How many times have you said that? I, yeah, I know. Well, I keep trying to, you know, I keep like, trying yeah, to take direct, a shot. You know, every single yeah, time Forrest does that. Direct the conversation in, into the movie that we're ostensibly covering. Okay. Um, ostensibly. Ostensibly. Yeah. Although, although I do want to hear the how John got into uh, writing for uh, Sinatra, but we'll get to that. Okay. It'll take that. five Sorry. minutes to tell the story, but it is a great, great story. I wouldn't yeah. lie to you. Let, let's you get the clip for us. Should we do that? It, no, it's, oh, it's not yeah. a clip. It's in the book, but I'll condense it for you. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let, let's let's. Uh, I have a I have a clip about um, working on about working on this movie. Um, and then we'll we'll go to your we'll go to your story after that. You did all that great research and struggling to get through me to get to your show. Go ahead. <laughs> Normally, it's Andy and him and me giving them the business, so it's it's nothing new for him. <laughs> Frank, I had met when he first came to Hollywood, and uh, I'll never forget he was starring in a television adaptation of Our Town, a famous play by Thornton Wilder. Which he sang uh, Love and Marriage. Right. That came out of the score by 
Sammy Kahn. Frank had about five songs to do in that, plus all of the dialogue and all of the business. And the production was on a Sunday evening. And our first rehearsal call for a read-through of Otto Preminger's script was that following Monday morning. I think the call was for 10 o'clock. Now, Frank is the kind of a performer who, when he had finished with a production or an appearance, he wanted to blow off steam. And the way he blew it off steam was to stay up all night and drink. Well, that's what he did after the Our Town production was completed on the air. So here we are all sitting around this big table, Garen McGavin and Eleanor Powell, Kim Novak and me, and Otto Preminger, and we're all waiting for Frank. And he doesn't show at 10, he doesn't show at 10.30, he doesn't show at 11, and at about 11.15, he comes in and he's all bleary-eyed and he's had a terrible night and he's full of apology. And Otto Preminger being the wise producer that he is, lets it go and said, come on, let's sit down and read the script, which we did. And from that point on, all through the production, Frank was just an absolute professional. Otto Preminger had a reputation of being a bear to work with. Right. Did you find that to be the case? Right. If you knew your craft and you knew your role and you did it properly, you got along swimmingly with him. It was only when those elements were not present that he would start chewing on people. And just so, again, for the benefit of those people who don't know, The Man with the Golden Arm was a, was a uh, best-selling novel by Nelson Algren, I believe. Right. It was, and it was adapted for uh, motion pictures. Right. And it was the first time this subject had been addressed in films to such a degree that uh, I think it was the FBI sent a man to our set and was at Preminger's side through most of the production to see that, I don't know, maybe that no real drugs were used or that he didn't go over the line in the depiction of, of uh, the addict's habits and so on. But I recall that one of those guys was there all the time. How much would a job like that pay? What, to just be the FBI agent that hangs out with Otto Preminger? Yeah, just make sure that nobody's doing drugs. Nope. Good. Hey, oh, I see you doing drugs over there. What are you, what are you doing? <laughs> um, no, I, I kind of I find it kind of fascinating, though, that like there really was an FBI guy on the set because it seems like Otto Preminger is into this, into this novel and into this idea um, as, as kind of a warning to people. Like, hey, heroin's kind of a scourge. Don't do that. And it does seem like it legitimately comes from that uh, side of it. And he does seem to like to court controversy. It, it's like, interesting, though, because later on, he does a very seldom seen movie called Skidoo uh, with Groucho oh, yeah. Marx, where Groucho Marx does acid instead of, you know, or he smokes a, a joint instead of his regular cigar. And it was a pro LSD movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, then also, he played, so, he played heroin, Mr. Freeze right? on like, Batman. It doesn't. It doesn't necessarily seem like it's anti-drug altogether. It just seems like heroin specifically is is what this movie kind of covers. And you know, I mean, who who 
who is pro heroin out there? You know what I mean? So, but like, it's interesting. They do have the FBI hanging out on set, like making sure that like, Hey, we're, you're not trying to like sneak this into being a, uh, a pro heroin movie. Are you like, we need to make sure that there's no drugs on set. And cause it does seem like it's a pretty, um, a pretty graphic depiction i think of heroin addiction like you literally see frank sinatra as you see behind us in the in the background like you know you, you watch him get shot up and they never use the word heroin but like i i would argue that you know uh seeing seeing somebody shoot up in front of you is a little bit more traumatic than actually saying the word heroin like <laughs> well part of that like was uh the code too right you know they had to they had to get around it in a certain way but then like we we don't i don't have the visual for it but i pulled up that german version of the poster that's pretty straightforward with it <laughs> it has like a big like needle full of junk like on, on the arm but it's yeah, still that without, any of the, without any of that beauty that uh, uh saul bass brought to the the original poster you know, which which yeah. you know all all love to saul bass um you know just just top the poster with that gorgeous uh design he did which i blatantly ripped off for this uh but it, it was kind of fun, you know, kind of like recreating what he did. Um, so there you have hey, it. I, I just want to say real quick, because I don't know if we'll get to it later, but uh, I, I completely forgot that Darren McGavin was in this movie, which is a travesty on my part, because he's probably one of the best character actors that has ever been in Hollywood. But I, I just wanted to point that out because he is really great. Yeah, cool. He, he, he plays the uh, he plays the, the stock. Yeah. yeah. Well, and Arnold Stang, right? I mean, Arnold, Arnold, Arnold Stang, Stang is amazing. The the side yeah, that's who you're yeah. thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Arnold, I mean, Arnold Stang's fantastic and was in Hercules in Manhattan with Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and, uh, and he's been and, in other movies besides that, Andy. But I, yes, I, yeah. I that's right. well, what have I seen? Actor, the actor that talked, uh, the actor that talked uh, in that clip was John Conti, who's Richard Conti's brother who is a very fucking prolific um, noir actor, is in some of like the biggest noir movies out there. So uh, he plays the alcoholic, uh, you know, Malio's uh, like alcoholic other other boyfriend. Yeah, yeah, that, that who gets, uh, who Frank tosses across the room, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to give two shout outs since we're talking Premature that I have to say, we, we mentioned the Senate earlier. I think advising consent is a great Premature film that most people don't know about and haven't seen. And probably one of the best procedural uh, of the American Senate. I mean, it should be an instructional video practice. It's it's a very good movie. Yeah. And, it's a really good film. Yeah. And that's, I would say that's the second best, but anatomy of a murder for me is number one, like by, by far. Also uh, a great poster all, all by Saul Bass. Um, yes. You know, uh, all hail Saul Bass. I'm sorry. I love that guy's work. I, and uh, when I did the promo for it, a, another musician friend of mine, actually a drummer, because Frank Sinatra in this film plays a drummer. That's a that's like, like a key factor to this way before Whiplash. Right. And uh, he uh, noted the music. The music in this is great. This, this is the, you know, yeah. the, of course, I'm going to talk about the music and the musician on the panel. Right. But like it's a <laughs> but the music in here is like notably good, like to the fact that sweet the glam rock band from the seventies or the suite, if you prefer actually covered in desolation Boulevard, the, the main theme. A lot of people don't know that, but I know a lot about the band suite. Thank you very much. <laughs> but, um, but John. Oh, I'm, uh, so glad, I'm so glad you played that clip. I needed to take a quick, quick nap. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how can you possibly be surprised that the FBI showed up, you know, Probably Joe McBride talked about this the other day. 
with you, JG, when you were talking about the assassination, the business of the deep state. There is no deep state in the United States. The United States is the deep state. They have infiltrated absolutely everything in this country, most importantly being the media, which they still own. Listen, when John Kennedy was alive, there were over 1,500 different owners of media. And along comes the worst president, Bill Clinton, signs a Communications Act in 96. Now it's three monopoly corporations. Now you guys are too young to remember, but you don't recall there was only one phone company at one time called AT&T. And they were taken to court as a monopoly. And they yep. spent millions fighting it, saying you're going to destroy television service in America if you break us apart. They broke them apart into a dozen pieces. And guess what? We have a dozen great telephone companies today. The media that owns our free press. And John Kennedy said it. And Thomas Jefferson said it. He didn't use these words, but I will. We do not need a fucking president. We need a First Amendment with free speech. And Kennedy and Jefferson said more important than any politician or president is a free speech. Trump had a pen. He talked about fake news, which he actually needed, actually, because he needed an enemy, an enemy that we had. He used fake news the way the Germans used Jews in the 30s and the way you, we used commies in the 50s. He's a fucking lying hypocrite. He could have signed an executive order and destroyed them. And Biden could do the same. But as Garrison said, until you solve the murder of John Kennedy, the, pre the president does not run this country. And they don't. Let me tell you. It's Oliver Stone on the phone, by the way. Yeah, the, <laughs> the second largest CIA operation in America is Hollywood. The third largest is right here in Las Vegas. They're into medicine. They're into religion. They're into politics. They're into publishing. They're into everything. There is no deep state. America is cooked and over with. It is gone, and it will never come back again. We all live now in our own isolated little islands that we live in, and we have to do the best we can to get by. Do I? And, and you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I hear this. I hear, hear this a lot from a lot of people who I don't like to talk politics, but I will do. Meatloaf, you know, was when I interviewed him. God, I loved him. What a talent. Oh, and speaking of Sinatra. If you go to the Meatloaf show, did any of you ever hear Meatloaf sing the national anthem at a ball game? Not, not in person. Yeah. I've, I've yeah. seen the video. You go to my Meatloaf show. I don't want to, it might be number six or seven. At the end. And this is talking movies on YouTube, right? Yeah, it's and it's on YouTube. You just fast forward to the end. The show is fantastic anyway, because he's great. At the end, he, now listen to me, Ray Charles. It's a lousy fucking song anyway. It's just horrible song. Tough to sing, not musical. Ray Charles by far did the best thing. Until Meatloaf. I am telling you, it's like Pavarotti without an accent. It's so magnificent. So when I'm talking to him, I tell him, 
you know, I'm going to play this at the end of the show because a lot of people don't know you're this good, which he was thankful for. But in any event, two things. He was the strongest Trump supporter I knew. He refused to take the vaccine. And of course, COVID is what uh, killed him. But he loved my Trump jokes. And his favorite joke was, you know, here we are bashing the Soviet Union again over the Ukraine. So much fucking bullshit. We've been just trying to destroy Russia since 1917 to stop the first socialist revolution. And we've been doing it and failing all around the world for 100 fucking years. That's how inept we are. So in any way, the joke was because of the, of the media is bashing Putin again. And I said, well, we finally have proof that Putin is a liar. He called Trump a genius. Well, that was Meatloaf's favorite joke. And sadly, he died before the rest went on. But at the end of the show, I had said to him, do you like the national anthem as a song? I said, wouldn't you like God Bless America or America the Beautiful because they're easier to sing? He said, I just love singing it, John. And I said, well, it showed. And I said, did you ever hear Sinatra sing That's America to Me? Have you guys ever heard it? Yeah, yeah, it's good. Okay. The movie was eight minutes long, and it was written by Albert Maltz, a blacklisted writer, won an Academy Award. I would suggest if you have a chance, maybe at the end of this show, tack on Frank Sinatra singing That's an Amer America to me. That is an America that has long since disappeared. But that's the America I fell in love with as a kid, and it's a magnificent song. It was Sinatra's favorite song. I can I can play it uh, towards towards the towards the end of this. Um, oh, wonderful! Good for you. Um, but are, are we going to get to the uh, the story of yeah, how we should, John? We get to the story of how John ended up uh, writing for, and then because uh, Conan is a hard out at the at the top of the hour. I after John's story, I do want to do the letterbox one liners because uh, uh, you know you can do but, the letterbox one liners. Just to me when. You no, no, just no, we tell got time. We got time. Yeah, we, we, got, got, we got, got Okay, time. I will tell it. Sure, it's like a five minute bit. It's fine. Uh, I, well, I'll try to keep it to five minutes. Anyway, I'm a critic at NBC, and there's a movie called uh, The Great Gatsby with Robert Redford. And it's produced by Paramount, and the president of Paramount is Phyllis Diller. I mean, it's really Barry Diller, but he really is a Phyllis, believe me. So, in any event, it is the rage, you see it on the cover of Time Magazine, you see it on the cover of Newsweek, and oh God, they're spending a fortune to it. And all around Hollywood, they're having Gatsby parties. And, uh, and Phyllis Diller goes on television and he said, I would suggest you buy Paramount stock because you know the, the, the ticket price to a theater at the time was only $3. This movie is so good, we're going to hard price it at $6. But the reason to buy Paramount stock is this movie is going to be such a hit. We have bought a clothing manufacturer in New York to do Gatsby clothing. And the clothing and the cinematography is brilliant. And the movies, everybody's beautiful. So that's the rage, right? So I go to see the film. And my closing line of the review is, the only way Barry Diller is going to get $6 to see this movie is to charge three to get in and three to get out. <laughs> it was the line that destroyed the movie. It was quoted all over the place because the movie is a piece of shit because they tell the story wrong. But I don't 
Well, I'll tell you why they told it wrong. Anyway, I got a call from George Slaughter. George Slaughter was the co-creator of Laugh-In, one of the great comedy shows of all time. Sad Lonely lasted three years because of George Slaughter's ego. And the show was really created by an English drunk named Big B. Wolf, who gets very little credit for it. Big B. That was the show that, that Nixon did the laugh it to me or, or sock it to me. Wow. Yeah, that's it was controversial, but yeah, yeah that, but, but that shouldn't was, define the show. Yeah, but funny is funny. Okay. So in any event, <laughs> uh, George Slaughter call, calls me and he's and, and the reason the show went down the tubes is because it became Rowan and Martin's laugh in. And Slaughter's ego was so immense, he was taking them to court to try to stop. And the show died. He literally killed his own show because of his ego. So anyway. NBC calls him and says, can you do a revival of Laugh-In? He said, yeah, but I'm not having any hosts. Okay. So they say, still, will you do it? He said, yeah, I'll have a new host every week. So they thought, oh, a new star every week. That'd be fun. They say yes to him. So he hears. That's what they're going to end up doing with this podcast. When I, when I. It's just going to be Conan and Andy picking a new, a new host every week. Oh, okay. So (laughs) in any event. I'm sorry if I cost you your job. Slaughter here. <laughs> and, Hardly a job. And he, and he calls he me up and says, hey, John, can I, use that joke? can I use that joke on the new laughing? And, you know, you write really funny lines in your reviews. Do you mind if I steal them? And I said, not at all. And I said, hey, wait a second, George. You know, laughing doesn't have anything more than eight seconds long. I said, why don't you have a resident critic at large? That's what I am here. I'm called the critic at large. I'll write my own shows. And if you want to write for anybody else, he said, so you're, writing oh, at the, you're writing at the LA Times at the time, right? No, no, no. Los Angeles Magazine. Oh, all right. I doubled their circulation. Ah, there were reviews. Lucille Ball said, aside from my writers, you, Lucy always credited her writers. She said, my husband and I fight every night over the best writer in town, and that's Johnny Barber in LA Magazine. So anyway, he said, yeah, I'll give you a minimum as a writer, a minimum as a, as a performer. I said, great. I'll, when do you want me to start? He said, tomorrow morning. So the next day I go over there, he hands me a piece of paper, and he says, you know what? Our first host is going to be Sinatra. What, could you do me a favor? Now he had 12 writers. I'm glad Sinatra finally came into the story. I was, I was, I was wondering here. <laughs> okay, so anyway, Sinatra, he says, will you write the Sinatra stuff? And I said, yeah, and he had 12 other writers. Now, Sinatra comes in. There, there are no audiences for laughing, okay? It's all canned laughter. Sinatra comes all in. All just Nixon laughing into a, Nixon laughing into a, a tin can. Are you going to keep interrupting me? No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was the last one. I'm I'm trying to get to this story, which you might find cute, and I don't like to swear. The only time I think profanity is valid is during golf and sex. Okay? (laughs) I don't don't like to swear at anybody. I'm I'm muting myself. I'm not going to say anything. Okay. Then just censor yourself for a minute. Now, I shouldn't even say it. It's your show. But you might it's okay, enjoy, is that the nice? Okay, <laughs> okay, but you might enjoy this and you might not. Uh, in any event, 
I'm going to see Sinatra now, the first time since I was 17 years of age, and I'm sitting at the very back. I don't even want to be in the front row. I'm so afraid and so intimidated. I'm like 40 years old, for God's sake, and I'm a critic, and I'm there. And I know that Sinatra hates critics. He absolutely loathed Rex Reed, just loathed him. So anyway, he comes in, and George Slaughter has some papers, and he gives him the jokes. And Sinatra, who wrote this shit? Who wrote, oh, fuck this. And he's throwing stuff on the ground. That's what he was like. He was such a perfectionist, okay? And they're terrified of him. Everybody is quiet. And then they did give it walks over and said, Mr. Sinatra, uh, I'm sorry you don't like that, but just take a peek at this. So he hands him my stuff. And he starts to giggle and giggle and giggle. I'm not going to tell you what the jokes are because you'll fucking interrupt me again. So he, he said, who wrote this? And Digby says, Johnny. And he points to me way up there. And Sinatra looks up and he does this. Hey, kid. Calls me kid. I'm fucking 40 years old. So I don't know what to do. And I stumble down there and I get in front of him. And he said, you wrote this? Yes. And he said, hold it a minute. Aren't you that critic with Tom Snyder on the six o'clock news? And I said, yes, sir. He said, holy shit, a critic. That's what he said. And I said, but Mr. Sinatra, I'm the heterosexual Rex Reed. Well, he fucking howled and howled. And then Digby said, oh, Mr. Sinatra, you may like this. Johnny had just put out an album called It's Tough to be White with liner notes by Dick Gregory. And it got bombed at the LA Times. And Sinatra grabs my hands and he said, could you get me a copy? I want to show Sam. And I said, Mr. Sinatra, no, the LA Times said it was the worst taste album ever put out. And I said, I sent him a note saying, you're supposed to eat and listen to it and not eat it. So he laughed again. He said, get it to me. The next day it was delivered to Dorothy, his secretary at his Formosa offices. I never thought I would hear from him again. The very next day, I get a hand-delivered letter on the wall as I speak. Frame, Frank Sinatra, he says, you're mine now. We're going to do lots and lots together. So that's how I met him. And I have one more magnificent story to tell you about Mr. Sinatra that will take five minutes. But I won't tell it now until you guys chat about whatever you want to chat about. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you for thank you for unmuting me. Um, <laughs> um, no, I, I, so we do we do a bit called Letterbox One Liners. I want to make sure that the, this gets done before uh, Conan has to go. So um, how long before you have to go, Conan? I, it's the top of the hour, but we're just gonna. I think we're just oh, gonna I, get it. I, out I of don't the know way. what the top so, of the hour means. I don't okay. have a clock. Another 40 minutes or so. Oh, uh, Jesus. Well, give me five minutes, then you guys have to rest. All right. Well, let's, let's do let's do why don't we do this real quick? I'm okay, just gonna take away from you, Forrest. Uh you'll appreciate this, John, because as okay. a critic, uh, are you familiar with the site Letterbox? The the No, website? I, I've never seen the show. This I love JG. This is the first time I've seen this. I do anything that JG is involved with. So do we your one-liner thing because often the truth is. Your viewers and listeners are a lot smart, better than your guests. <laughs> well, that's kind of the idea. So the idea is, uh, so Letter Letterbox is a is a social media site that um, 
you know, does reviews for movies and it's people like it's people. It, it's Facebook for movies, basically. Yeah, well, it's kind of but better, but better than that. It's better I when I explain it. it. But it's it. a it's a bottom up democracy. Everyone gets their say, not just the Ebers or the Rex Reeds, right? Everyone oh, gets wonderful. their say. Okay. So when we when we talk about movies, or in this case, ostensibly talk about movies, uh, what, what I'll do is I'll go through and find the ones that kind of jump out at me because I think the best format for it is just a quick hit, like a quick hit, little one liner. And Corey, if you get a one liner from anybody that says tell John Barber to shut the fuck up, you better do it. <laughs> But but I, I call and sometimes it's they're funny, sometimes they're thoughtful, sometimes they're bizarre. Go ahead, start reading them then. But the point is we have a little <laughs> conversation about them. That's that's the bit is we we, we kind of react to them and and, and give that's our take fine. on them. That's, well, so. that's what they're for. No, they're just I, stimulate. Comedy. All right, let's go. Let's go. We're going. All right, here we go. Here we go. Man with the golden arm. Few things as enjoyable as a Saul Bass opening title sequence. Great chaotic jazz score. Got to be honest though. I really wish his arm was actually made of gold. <laughs> <laughs> That's Nick Houston there. Instead of being made of heroin, as we yes. saw in this movie. Let's see this Nick on the phone now. Preminger destroys production codes with facts and logic. <laughs> yeah, that I mean that kind of was that 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 clip that we watched. Like this John, this one isn't for you. Just one fixed by ministry plays aggressively. Yeah. <laughs> Christina. <laughs> that one got me. That one's for me. Oh, sure. Join a jazz band in the 50s. I'm sure that'll really help you kick your smack addiction. <laughs> it's like when Bowie uh went to uh uh West Germany uh to to, to kick his uh addiction. Exactly. And, and made made a record they don't remember making because he was so high at the time. Yes. Oh my God. Hangover Hamilton said it again. <laughs> I used to pretend to be paralyzed when I was about seven years old. That's one of the craziest parts of this movie that we haven't touched on at all, but you not know. at all. Not at all. And we, we may not, but it, it's a great, you're right. It's a crazy part of the, of the film. Fuck. fuck. Oh, fuck it. I'll do crack with Sinatra. <laughs> Frank Sinatra nibbling on a hunk of cheese at 5. AM is very relatable content. It's Kevin. Jack Indeed. Yeah. I like I like some midnight cheese, you know. Yeah. Definitely. No. I mean, I don't because I'm lactose and fucking tolerant or intolerant yeah. now. But you know, you're already I on thin ice, buddy. You're pushing it. <laughs> <laughs> you eat the cheese. Was so shocked when I discovered he was a card dealer. Yeah. No, Same I, here. Dealer, right? Yeah. Same here. They kept they kept they kept being like dealer, dealer, come here, dealer, and it's like, oh shit, he's fucking selling heroin then. And they're yeah. like, they're like, no, 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 no. no, he's, no. He's, he's dealing cards. Dealing cards. Yeah, because I was thinking, like, you know, Biggie's, uh, Biggie's big rule there. You know, don't get out of your own supply. <laughs> and, and and here it is. It's just like, oh, it's just cards, man. That's a disappointment. This was a dare commercial, but a good one for sure. Of course, I dare the uh, the was it the uh, Reagan? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, Reagan, it's right? been since Reagan. I I went through dare and. Dr Drug yeah. and resistance education. No, dare, dare to resist drugs and well, Wait. It, I, I don't, I don't fucking. I remember that there was like they had a dare to resist drugs and violence. Uh, all, all I know is that I knew a lot of people that went through the dare program and they're like, I'm gonna do drugs now. <laughs> yeah, dr drug abuse resistance education was the name of it, and yeah. Anyway, I, I grew I left, up with that. So I, left, I thought it was funny. I left public school for middle school. <laughs> So I didn't I didn't get their dare fucking conversation. I that's why I am the way I am, I guess. Drummer bummer. 
<laughs> this is a story That's of how cool. Ringo That's, came I laughed. to be. This is a story of how Ringo came to be. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, those are the Letterbox one-liners. Letterbox place for film. You can follow the show, uh, which is ostensibly Forrest, uh, Movie Next Extravaganza. I, of course, am Conan Neutron, uh, at Conan Neutron. Uh, J. Andrew World is on there as well. Uh, J.G. Michael, I don't think you're on there, right? I'm not on Letterbox. I'm going to have to rectify that. Okay. Yes, you should rectify you that. Uh, John Barber, hey man, if, if he if they ain't paying him, he's not coming on. But he is John Barber. We love having him anyway. Uh, and yeah, that would that would be John jumping down to like the you know the, the shooting off the the one the one two sentence movie reviews. <laughs> Why I actually one of the reasons that I, in all honesty, went on Letterboxd in the first place is you can keep track of the movies you want to see. And oh, it'll tell wow, you like I where they're streaming. I, I should show you something. You see, this is how. By the way, this is how I got started on this. Oh, on this wait business. a second! Look at me now. Oh my god! <laughs> the first, you got the, the first, first one for free. Oh, yeah, the first yeah, shot for free. Wait a second. There's a lady named Carol Haney. Oh, she has this. four published novels, and when she got, uh, oh my god! And this is called the greatest reviews I've ever read, and it's by Carol Haney. And it just nice. came out, and Carol was the one that put together Your Mother's Not a Virgin. And I have a second book called The Wittiest Man in America is a Canadian. And she put <laughs> that, of course, me. And then uh, she put that book together. She didn't know that I had been a movie critic. So when she found oh, out. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. So when she found out, she got the 10 years. I have the 10 years of all my LA magazines, sent them all to her. She read them all and put that book together. It has some of the funniest stuff you can ever, ever read. The Jesus Christ Superstar is the funniest movie review ever written. And my story about trying to review Deep Throat, I was ordered to review Deep Throat by NBC management because Jackie Kennedy had seen it. And they wanted to know if the first lady can see it, the first critic can see it. That is hilarious. <laughs> so now, if you want uh, the quick last Frank Sinatra story, it's kind of si sad to tell, but it's it's shorter than the previous one. Look, we're not here to hear her, how Forrest did crack, okay? We, we, we want to hear from you. Oh, uh, well, thank you. That's Smoke crack with me, bro. Okay. Uh, I, I, I thought really, you were going on mute. Thank you. Oh, uh, 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 my... Am I on mute? I no, no, I was talking no, no, to no, Forrest. No, you're, you're good. John, you're good. John, you're let's good. hear the story, the Sinatra yeah, story. The story. Uh, story time. I was a critic. I had no contract at NBC because if I signed a contract, they would own my material. Now, being an orphan kid and having nobody in my life until I met my wife, luckily, and accidentally had the greatest son in the world, who now is a very successful writer and producer. He was the CSI, um, Criminal Minds, and last uh, 29th of January, he debuted an eight-part series called In Cold Blood into the Top Ten on Netflix. So, And he did that like me all on his own. My work was my life, so I didn't want anybody to own it. And I was fired three times for the reviews that I wanted to do and brought back by popular demand. They got so many phone calls bringing Johnny back. So anyway, I'm 46 years of age. I do shows Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays, uh, $150 a night. So I'm making four, I'm making uh, $450 a week. 
So Sinatra calls me into his office. His office was in the small studio on Formosa Avenue. It's called the Formosa Studios, right across from the bar that you see a lot in, in movies. And if you walked into his office, you wouldn't even know the guy was in show business. He only had one picture on the wall. It was a picture of his mother. No plaques, nothing. I mean, you wouldn't know. He dressed casual sweater, casual slack. It's just so comfortable. And he had the nicest secretary of anybody I ever met. Her name was Dorothy. And so he says to me, and it's after I've done the Tonight Show. And he's thrilled because he feels he's found the star. He maybe found the next Johnny Carson, the next Jack Parr. So he calls me into the office and he said, I'm going to make you a star. And I smile. I, I say, thank you. He said, well, you haven't heard it yet. I said, well, I'm saying thank you in, in advance because, you know, thank you. So he said, listen, I want you to be my opening act for six months to a year. And he said, I'm going to pay you $4,500 a week. And we'll probably have two or three shows a week all around the country. You're going to be my opening act. And I just stare at him. And he says, what's wrong? I said, I can't do it. And he said, what do you mean you can't do it, for God's sake? You make $450 a week. I know all about you. You're going to get 10 times that much. And people will know you. You write the funniest shit in the world, okay? I mean, you're just really good. I don't want to help you. And I said, well, thank you very much. But I can't. He said, why can't you? And I said, I have a 10-year-old son, and it was a son I really never wanted, you know, because I came from a broken home, and I had no idea what kind of father I was going to be. I had an alcoholic mother I almost never saw. She was always out with one of the uncles that I ever met off to Buffalo or somewhere. And Mr. Sinatra, I remember everything about how sad I was about not having a father. I remember everything I missed, everything I would have wanted. I said, I even went to a stranger, the only happily married family I saw with a son, Don Lee, my age, stories in the book. I asked him to adopt me. I said, I'm not leaving my son. I said, I don't even care if I don't have a job. I want to make sure my son doesn't grow up with what I miss. Well, he almost got tears in his eyes. And he said, John, but you and I have to do something together. And I said, easy, we can do it here. He said, do what? I said, an Italian roots. He said, what the fuck is an Italian roots? And I said, well, haven't you seen ABC, Kunta Kinte? Okay, you know, five nights on ABC, the highest ratings ever. He said, so what? I said, here's what I like to do. I said, Bing Crosby just died on a, of a heart attack on a fucking golf course. And, in Spain, a few months ago, you don't hear a song from him. And he said, hold it. That was my idol. Nothing about negative about Bing. I said, that's not the point. I said, he was a singer and an entertainer, but you were a social force. If you and your rap gang or whatever you called that trio you were with, if you had not sung High Hopes, John Kennedy would not have been a president of the United States. That's the song that got him elected. I said, so you are a social force. And what I would like to do is sit you down in your uh, Palm Springs home. I will ask you questions about everything in your life, but you will never, you will own the tapes. They will stay with you. 
when we're finished, we will have 15 or 20 hours, which I will edit into five hours. It'll be the only visual autobiography ever made by a major American performer. And next to Charlie Chaplin, you're one of probably the most famous entertainer in America. So that's what I would like to do. And he stared at me for the longest. And he said, well, what kind of questions would you ask me? Listen, I'll ask you stuff that'll make you uncomfortable. I'm going to interview people that don't like you. I will interview people that love you. I'll interview people who got married by you, got divorced by you. And I said, you know, I might ask you about Sam Giancana. And he said, who? And I said, listen, and I told him the story about being 17. And I said, the reason a 17-year-old knew it was Sam Giancana is because it's so divine intervention, put it next to me. It's headlines on the train next to me, and I leave. So I recognized the guy. And so he said, you've got balls. Because at the time, he was denying to the gaming commission in Vegas that he had any connection with the hoods because he was a partners in the Sands Hotel. Got into a big fist fight. He had a steep knock on the Sands Hotel by a tough Jew. But in any event, I said, listen, you will own it all. I will edit it. And he said, how much do you want? I said, I don't want anything. Do you know what an honor it is? So you got to have something. And I said, I'm about 10% in my name that I directed it. That's all. That's all. He said, when can you start? And can I have 10 pages on it tomorrow? So I said, I'll go home and write 10 pages. Give it to Dorothy. So I give it to Dorothy. The next day, I get a call from George Slaughter telling me that he has a contract with NBC to do a series called Country versus City, Country Jokes versus City Jokes. And he said, but I've been reading about your real people thing with Richie Pryor. Can you come over here and talk to me? So I go to talk to George Slaughter and I get a commitment for the first hour on NBC by accident. And there you go. So then I get a call from Sinatra. He said, oh, God, the 10 pages are fabulous. When can we start? And how long will it take? I said, it'll take six months to a year. When can we start? I said, I don't know. He said, what do you mean you don't know? I said, I've been working four years to get real people on the air. I just got on the air. I can't start. And that's how real people started. And that's the last I saw of Sinatra. Wow. It, it took that long to get real people on. Wow. That's, that's actually very surprising. Years. And that was Andy's childhood. That's how it started. That's yes, how I was conceived at that wow. moment. And... Yeah, and I'll tell you something interesting about, and I predicted it. At the very beginning, Real People was a monstrous hit. I said, I'm going to change it. Before I got it on, I told the uh, Daily Variety that I was going to change the face of American television with what I called the entertainment of reality. Now, when it became a monster hit, my wife said to me, what do you think is going to happen? I said, television is going to turn to shit. She said, why? I said, well, they're going to find out they don't need writers. They don't need actors. They don't do it. We need directors. They got real people, but they don't know how to tell a story about real people. And you know, when you, and I said, you know, honey, when you open a bottle of Lafitte Rothschild wine, it's delicious. You leave it out on the counter for 30 years, it turns to shit and vinegar. 
and American television is going to turn to shit and vinegar. When I got into television, you had to have a modicum of talent, of wit, of charm, of intelligence, something appealing to the public, okay? They are things that cannot get you hired in American television today. All you need to be a star in fucking American television today is an absence of shame and an absence of embarrassment. Well, well, hey, just uh, as an addendum to that, we do have some good people in, in TV today. Like oh, your, uh... my God. Listen, there are thousands of good people. I hear from them all the time. Unfortunately, none of them are on the air or in the fucking government, or at least in yeah. positions of authority. Well, I, I just wanted to plug. I, I know your your son has followed in, in your footsteps, Christopher Barbour. He's done Criminal Minds and CSI, and, and I just wanted to say I love his work. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. My, my, my wife endlessly watches those shows, and I mean endlessly, or at least it seems endless to me. But uh, yeah, all, all very well done shows for, for a genre that's not usually my speed. <laughs> uh, well, I, must, I must tell you, even though I guess I write well and I do what I do well, the thing I did best in my life was to be a father. Oh, I must tell you, I told my son, you know, if there is such a thing of reincarnation. I want to come back as my son. He had the greatest father and mother in the world. And he is the great, I've met three geniuses in my life, Buckminster Fuller, the scientist, Jim Garrison, and my son. My son's way smarter than I am. He's brilliant, brilliant, Bob. And you know what? I hugged him from the day he was born. And Friday, he's coming up. And a friend of mine gave me great side seats to the Los Angeles Kings in the Golden Knights in the best arena in America, T-Mobile, to see a hockey game. And I'll be hugging my son during the hockey game. Oh. Now, I want to bury the lead here. You met Buckminster Fuller? Yeah, Buckminster Fuller said the smartest thing I ever heard in 1970. I interviewed him for an hour. And he said on the air, he said, John, the United States of America has the greatest ability to manufacture anything in the world, to create anything in the world. We have the smartest people here, the most imaginative, the most inventive. He said, we have the ability to create enough wealth and build enough things that we could house every man, woman, and child in the world, plus feed them. But the fact that we do none of that makes us the most underdeveloped country in the world is that brilliant 1970 and yeah, we're getting right. worse smart man yeah we're, yeah we're, we're getting worse it's all gone it's all gone but there are you know there are great people around yeah, now we don't even now we don't even manufacture any of those many things no, no not at all we not give at them all. away oh uh, it's it, it, it's literally it's literally heartbreaking i guess that's one of the reasons I might not love the fact that you call this show movies because you can talk about anything on it. But I, and tonight I played the Jimmy Stewart speech uh, that brought me to America. And God, it almost brought tears to my eyes because God, that's the America I felt in love and it's gone. But please close your show with Sinatra singing. That's America to me. It's phenomenal. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I could do that. Um, I, my trajectory into getting into doing a show that's about movies is actually similar to yours. Um, I was working on several shows at the same time that were about politics and, 
talking about a lot of stuff with politics. And it's, it's interesting because on Sunday, I think um, I, I was producing last last year, I was producing um, Ben Burgess's podcast and he's coming on to this show for the first time on Sunday. But um, Great. It, it's a, uh, you know, I, I kind of just got sick of talking about politics. Like that's a big part of stuff. Like it just. You know, the reason it. is there's no upside to it. There is nobody in this country. You know, when I came to this country, I could name you 50 men and women of all. They could be liberal, conservative, or anything. You know, Barry Goldwater would be kicked out of the Republican Party as a fucking socialist today. I mean, I could name you all these people. I can't name you one in this country. I mean, and we don't even hear from Ralph Nader anymore. There is not one inspiring human being that is well known in this country. Well, come on, John. Bernie Sanders, you're not a Bernie guy. No, you know? Let me tell you about Bernie Sanders. Okay, it's oh, a part well, time. I ever, if I, you know, I never have sworn in my act until I came to this show. But uh, <laughs> I was, I listen. I wrote jokes. I wrote jokes for the black chief of police in Los Angeles. Uh, in Los Angeles, who wanted to run for mayor of the city. And the first year I wrote for them, he wouldn't use them. He was embarrassed because he said he didn't know how to tell jokes. And then the second year he called me, would you still do it? And I did. He became the mayor of Los Angeles. I wrote jokes for a lot of politicians, including Jane Fonda's husband. So anyway, I decided I would like to write some jokes for Bernie Sanders because Trump and the Clintons were absolutely easy target. He never answered me, even though I sent them. So I stopped sending them. Anyway, I sent them a note because I thought Bernie Sanders' crowds were as large as Trump's, except Trump's were 50-year-olds and, and Bernie's were 25-year-olds. That's the future. Trump is the past. So I thought, you know what? Even, Bernie has to run as an independent, even if it puts it into the House of Representatives, because Bernie Sanders was the only one who ever talked about the issues. He talked about student loans. He talked about the war. He talked about medicine. He talked about wealth. He talked issues. Nobody talked issues but Bernie Sanders. And then up pops. He's going to debate with the Wicked Witch of the North, Hillary, right? Up <laughs> so, pops this clip of Hillary that you may have seen. And it's about Gaddafi. We yeah, murdered this. This uh, it gets it gets quoted all the time on the show. We came, okay, we saw, he died. Right, that I, one. Yeah, he yeah. she cackled. <laughs> we came, we saw, he died. <laughs> so I said, listen, if you want to get rid of that bitch, show that during the debate. And they never answered me. So I thought, oh well, maybe he knows better, and didn't pay attention. Now, now it's over. And he folds his tent and he moves in with Hillary. I was so fucking angry. I went on Facebook and I ad-libbed the most vicious fucking letter to Bernie Sanders, how he was the worst kind of politician because he did destroys the most important thing in a voter's heart. And that is hope. And he stuck a knife in our hope. And I ended it by saying, well, fuck you. And I screamed. It got 50,000 hits in a week and stayed on Facebook. So that's how I feel about Bernie Sanders and Bernie Sanders right now. 
there was one lady, I think she was from Hawaii when the election started in 2000. Oh, no, not. She's, don't do that. She, she, she wasn't always the way she was. And I, we know. No, but the point about, was but, this yeah. lady who I can't remember came out against it's the Tulsi Gabbard okay. and she is literally yeah. the worst. Okay. They she all is. disappear. They all are fucking worthless. There isn't one person. Let me tell you something. If you believe in an external force, like a God or whatever it is, or if you believe in any other human being to follow and that is going to make you happy, you better prepare for a broken heart because they'll, they'll fuck you every time and break your heart every time. I mean, you know, it comes down to what it comes down to what Eugene Deb said. Eugene Deb. You have to trust yourself. Eugene Debs famously said, I don't want people to follow me because if you follow me, that means someone else could show up and you'd follow them and like, you know, you follow them. They put him in prison for that. Yeah. They did. He, I mean, he kind of, he kind of brought that on himself because he kind of felt guilty that, uh, you know, all of his comrades were in prison and he, was still on the. No, on the he circuit, did not so. bring it on himself. America, look what they did to Paul Robeson. The, no, I'm not he, saying he. I'm. I'm saying that Eugene Debs kind of stayed on the sidelines when it came to anti-war, uh, anti-war speeches, and he gave his famous speech in Canton, which got him arrested. And it right. came after several of his comrades had gotten arrested, and he felt right. like the fact that he hadn't come out against World War One was, uh, you know, what was really kind of uh, eclipsing anything else he would have done. So you know, he, no, knowing, knowing that the knowing that most probably he would get arrested for it, okay, he came out against World War I. I, I, I can't. Say, and I have to go because I have to feed my uh, feed my wife, and I haven't eaten since noon. Uh, I I play golf with a, a lot of the guys that voted for Trump. They're all major dealers and executives, and they even manage hotels. And I like all of them, even though we, we get along great and. I'm the big loser money-wise with them because I'm not as good a good a golfer as they are, but I absolutely, absolutely love the game. Oh fuck. I, I sort of forgot what I was gonna gonna say. And so maybe it wasn't so important. It wasn't so important. I was talking about you have to believe in just yourself. I know you're talking, oh yeah, they are bashing Democrats and Biden and burying them and shit like that. Okay. And while they're, and their and their and their stock prices keep rising all the time and bash them, hate Roosevelt. And they're all at social security age. And I said, hold it. Don't you guys love your social security? Don't you love your Medicare? Don't you love an eight hour work day? And you don't you love the fact that there are no more child labor laws, for God's sake? They said, well, what about that? And I said, you know how it came about? How? I said, it's socialists. What do you mean socialists? I said, FDR's running mate was Henry Wallace, the leading socialist in the United States, whom they destroyed in order to get the, the warmongering Harry Truman in there. And it was him who saved uh, the United States depression and saved capitalism by instituting all of these things. And I said, I have $1,000. You guys are all millionaires. Here's $1,000, the first one of you. And I put it on Facebook, who can send me proof 
that there is a law as important to all Americans as Social Security and Medicare and the eight-hour workday introduced by a Republican and passed into law. There's a thousand dollars. I've had a hundred and fifty replies, and nobody got the thousand dollars. It doesn't. And you know what? It's gone. It's gone. Absolutely gone. But it will survive. You know, we're like cockroaches. We'll survive. You know, we live in a garbage culture. The politics is garbage. I see people making a million dollars a year. Smart people make it anywhere. China and Russia have as many billionaires as we do. The second richest man in the world is a Mexican, a media owner, okay? Smart people can survive anywhere. And there are four of you there, so three of you are really smart, okay? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Forrest. You figured out who wants to go. <laughs> and you guys will survive. That's nature. Nature is only interested in the three Fs. Feeding, fighting, and fucking. And you feed and fight to fuck. They don't give a shit about your politics or your religion or anything. That goes the same for every living thing. Every living thing kills to live. And we are the major killers. And we're afraid to face it. You know who said that? America's greatest philosopher, Joseph Campbell, who wrote The Power of Myth. We are afraid to face the fact that we are killers and it is proven that we are 10 days away from capitalism. Civilization is just a thin veneer that holds us all together. Now, I don't mean to end the show like that. Oh, you mentioned anatomy of a murder, Corey, uh, uh, Conan. The best, Love anatomy of murder. The, yeah, the best courtroom drama, second best courtroom drama ever. You know what the first best is? And you must watch it. It's Inherit to Win. Men? Oh, oh, Inherit no, to Win. Yeah, yeah, Inherit yeah. to Win with Frederick March. Okay. Yeah. Oh, my God. And I played a clip from that. It's great. Anyway, thank you so much for having me. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to close it out here. Um and I'm going to say as my as my final as my final words on the show. Hustler's muscler. I'm legit compared to some ain't no 14-year-old junkies waiting to see me. <laughs>